0: Dear listeners of the Public Health Insight Podcast, my name is Will, and before we begin this week's episode, we just wanted to share a new partnership between PHI and the Canadian Global Health Students and Young Professionals Summit. The 7th Annual Global Health Student and Young Professionals Summit will be taking place virtually this October 17th, and this event will be totally free of charge for all participants. If you're interested in learning more about this event, please check out the link in this description below. Thank you so much, and enjoy the episode.
1: Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the
0: Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with.
2: Education is a key social determinant of health and has the power to improve health outcomes for populations. In the previous episode, we spoke about health disparities that exist between populations despite having similar levels of educational attainment with our guest Nicole Vick, adjunct professor, TEDx speaker, and Amazon best-selling author of Pushing Through, Finding the Light in Every Lesson. She remains with us in this episode to examine the barriers to education, the prevalence of institutional racism in our academic institutions, social exclusion, and how these factors interact to impact the health of already marginalized communities. This is where we left off in our conversation. So let's, uh, I just wanted
1: to switch it up a bit and talk about, uh, if we look at it from the other perspective, so we talk about how education influences um you know, population's ability to achieve, you know, positive health, if you will. What about barriers to education? So, when we look at it the other way, what are some things that influences um, someone's or a population's ability to kind of achieve the education that that they need? So, one of the examples I was seeing is, you know, maybe you live in um, an environment or a neighborhood where it's you know it's heavily polluted and you know, your child has asthma, and they have to miss a lot of um, classes every day, and they kind of fall behind in school because of the health problems caused caused by their environment, and then that kind of affects their the prospects in education. So that's just one example I could come up with.
3: Um, there are two things that come to mind for me that um, seem to impact uh, students in the communities that you know I'm familiar with. One of them is food, food access. If you're hungry, mm. Um, mm. you're not paying attention. You can't. You're hungry, um, and the other one is the exposure to violence and the trauma that occurs. Mm,
4: yes,
2: um, yes,
3: and you know there have been a, a couple of articles I had read over the years. I know I remember one article. I wish I could remember the name of the program that was going on in one of the school districts around trying to help children work through the trauma. But it, in this this particular article, the little boy, his mother had just had like a miscarriage or the the, the baby died. The mom was pregnant and the baby passed. And so mom was depressed. You know, she has going through her her feelings and trying to, to deal with everything. And so the little boy was also having a hard time because he didn't quite understand what was going on. And mom, of you know, understandably so wasn't in the in the right headspace to be able to really work with her son's feelings because she's trying to process her own. And so the teacher right. was able to figure out, hey, something's not right. He's acting differently, maybe withdrawn, maybe he was a little bit more hostile, combative, whatever it was. There was a program, art therapy program in the school that was able to help him work through what was going on. And I think they were also able to support the mom and help her get the help that she needed. So, you know, the impact of trauma, violence, uh, loss, um, grief mm-hmm. can also really have a huge impact on children we have seen um, studies that show that black children especially black boys are often kind of uh, filtered into special education classes because they're hostile mm-hmm. they're they're you know angry they're fighting and it's like what can we can we look and see what's going on at home or in the neighborhood that really may mm-hmm. be impacting this child's behavior, we're quick to kind of put them, oh, put them in a special ed class, put, right. them, put them or kick them out or expel them without really thinking about what's going on. So definitely violence and trauma and that exposure to violence. Um, and then literally just not having food um, and not being able to eat and know where your next meal is coming from can have huge impacts on a child's ability to learn. Right.
1: And I've seen even I was um, a while back, there was some, there was a community, I'm sure there's several of them, all over and including the United States where a principal kind of set up an initiative to get kids transported from their homes to the school because he found out that his school was having a lot of absenteeism because there was a lot of violence and um, most of his kids had to walk to school, right? So then you have parents having to make the decision between, you know, their child not getting, you know, assaulted or killed versus them getting education. Obviously, you know, if you're a parent, you're going to choose for your child to kind of be safe. So it just shows also that even just violence in communities, like you said, can pr- serve as a barrier for children getting, um, you know, sustained education. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. So exactly. So we've spoken extensively about how, you know, the, you know, the importance between education and health and how um, people who are tend to be more educated tend to have more positive outcomes, although there are some exceptions. But um, how easy is it to get an education? We've talked about violence being a barrier, um, but what about racial disparities specifically? And how, how do those impact um, the access to education and the quality of education someone receives while they're in the ed- higher education?
3: Well, I think one of the biggest things that so we're talking about college now, undergrad, grad school, right?
1: Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm
3: okay Mm -hmm. well let's talk
1: I heard you I heard you I heard you take a breath let's
3: Let's go so I I, I'll talk a little bit about my experience which was so so long ago over 20 years ago is you know it's okay (laughs) but I think it will actually make a lot of sense because I'm starting to see now a lot of colleges and universities sort of kind of come to terms with their own historical past and some of the things that they've done to, um, you know, either on purpose or on accident, um, sort of create this difference in experience for Black students and other students of color and everyone else. So I walked onto the campus of the University of Southern California as a freshman um, back in 1996. Um, I used to live probably five minutes away from campus my entire life. I grew up around USC. We went grocery shop shopping across the street from USC. So USC was very close, but it was yet far away. It felt far unattainable Hmm. because I didn't ever see anybody that looked like me on that campus, um, as close as I was to it in my entire life growing up somehow, you know, and I always say somehow, but no, the reality is I did work hard, um, Applied like everybody else, I got and took into school. Right, yay! Um, but I was—I I felt out of place. I felt uh, unprepared. I felt like this school is not built for me. It is not intended for me. I know the school is what was built in like 1880 or something like that. And and yeah, that in back then were they thinking about this black girl from South Central walking on in this campus? No. So the school, it, by its nature, mm-hmm. was not intended for someone like me. Add to that, I was pregnant. I was a teen mom, um, trying to navigate college, and so it was really hard. I there were mm-hmm. things like the Black Student Union and things that, and they offered support. Um, but you walk through campus, the people, the names on the buildings, and the the photos and statues. No, they're not black folks. Not saying they should—they right, should be, right. but it just didn't feel right, right. like there was diversity. Mm-hmm. And right. so you
1: didn't identify mm-hmm. with the place as much, right?
3: And so fast forward mm-hmm. to twenty years later, starting to see the university, and again, I'm picking on USC because that's my experience, and I'm sure others can speak to their experiences. Twenty years later, fast forward, they're talking about oh. We might want to rename this one particular building because uh, he was a former president of the university, but he was a supporter of eugenics. What? Mm. (laughs) Why? You know, why are we just now talking about this in 2020? It's almost like uh, Black Lives Matter and and all of the things that we have to do. We have to act up and act out collectively in general before people start to think about changing things. Oh, let's change the name of the Washington Redskins. How long have people been asking for that kind of stuff? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was just ironic again in 2020. I've been out of school since the year 2000 um, and Mm -hmm. felt out of place back then. And now, oh, maybe we should think about <laughs> how we treat our students mm-hmm. of color and how to make sure that our campus is more diverse. You think so? Mm-hmm. Like it? W-
2: <laughs> why
3: now? Why not twenty years ago, thirty years ago? Um, and I think it really does. Um, have an impact on the quality of the, the person's experience on campus, whether they get out on time or at all, as far as graduating. Um, I was told to take a leave of absence when I said I needed help. I was, I need help. I'm pregnant. What do I do? Well, maybe you should just, you know, take a leave of absence. Why? Why are right. you trying to tell mm. me to, <laughs> I, if I take the leave of absence, um, what is the likelihood that I'll come back and graduate? Right. Very low. Right, mm. right. So right, why are right. you? Why aren't you helping me and helping me find resources instead of just telling me to take a leave of absence?
1: Well, even I'm even thinking about the leave of absence. When you know, if you take that, I'm guessing if you maybe if you're you're out for a year or two, they might make you even redo a lot of the courses that you already it's done. True. So it's not very, um, it's not very. It, it doesn't um put you in a position where you can come back and feel like you won't be excluded. If right. and right. I'm, I'm glad you. Yeah kind of got into this as well because you know in the climate we're in now everyone is talking about police brutality and police are bad and this and that and i'm just like whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute what about healthcare? what about education what about all the other institutions yes that are set up you know with the cards stacked against you know people of racial and ethnic minorities um it's not and Yes, on one hand, we want to kind of call out these things, but it's all about we're all about business in action right now. We're not about just simply shining a light and just moving on. Like you said, Absolutely. you have to kind of put put measures in place to make disadvantaged students in the context of higher education feel included. Absolutely.
3: Right? I, and really quickly, I can remember undergrad. I had one black professor, mm. one can we talk One. about that really quickly too? Oh yes, let's Yes, yes.
4: let's talk about that. Do you it. guys remember <laughs> when you had your first um black or per- person of color as a professor? Or has have you ever had a professor that was black or that was racialized? Like for me it was in my last year of undergrad. Like even through wow. elementary I did not have a single racialized person as a teacher. So um Nicole, you're saying for you that was an undergrad?
3: Yeah, so in elementary school? all my teachers were black the mm. principal was black everybody okay. black <laughs> okay and i went to a private school mm. a parochial parochial school is actually the more correct term mm. junior high school nice mixture right of black and others um got to college got to usc i can remember one and i and the, the, the wonderful thing is i actually still talk to her today um she actually lives down the street mm. found out i said hey i think that's dr uh-huh. lewis <laughs> <laughs> walking her dog I'm that's like, awesome. wait a minute um graduate school, zero, mm-hmm. zero black teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, to your point, Linda, really important to me that you, there is that diversity on um, these, mm-hmm. these college campuses. And I talk to my undergrad students. And when we have our little section on education as a public health issue, I also ask them that very same question. And there's always at least two or three that say, Nicole, you are my first black professor mm-hmm. and I, or black mm-hmm. teacher, period. And I'm like, are mm-hmm. you serious? Um, and that's why I feel like it's my responsibility to give the black girl magic version of public mm-hmm. health um, and, mm-hmm. and weave in my work experience, which is amazing. But also my lived experience as a teen mom, for example, like, hey, I, that happens in, in urban communities. Um, and I'm still here. She's here. She's 23 years old. But she was born eight weeks early, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. we could be talking about her as an infant mortality statistic, which would not be uncommon. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, I try to make sure I weave all that in because, again, a lot of our students don't have that perspective. They have not interacted with a black person at that extent ever. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm glad I'm here to give that to you because you're going to get it (laughs) the full fledged (laughs) experience mm -hmm. um, for me. But yeah. That's a huge mm-hmm. question, and you you will be amazed at the the differences in response you get when you start to ask random people in your life. When did you have your first black teacher? You'll be amazed. Mm-hmm.
0: Something that came to my mind um, regarding race and higher education, not only um, in terms of the completion of higher education, but even just um, I guess the process to to even get into university or college or whatever. I feel like that just the whole application process there's so much inequity Mm -hmm. in that system that, you know, sometimes you have universities, it's, it's almost like, you know, it's, they're filling a quota of minorities and then, but then they they don't do anything to change the actual system. They make it so that it's benefiting those who are, who are privileged, those who have, you know, um, who, who do come from affluent families who are able to, you know, meet those of oftentimes the extracurriculars or even, you know, in high school or, Earlier, you know, they've had the, the resources to get tutoring or whatever. It's mm-hmm. I just find that it, obviously, you know, the quota, it's it is it's a good first step to recognize that there is a lack of visible minorities. But I find that it's, it's it is very much kind of a ban- a blanket, like a, a band-aid solution. You know, it's like, oh, here, you know, we're noticing that there aren't enough, um, you know, students cover, of color. So we'll make, we'll make sure we enroll X amount every, each year. But instead of doing that, it's it's really important to start considering like what's what is it about the system that, mm-hmm. that 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 made it so that you have to end up going to that solution? Like why why aren't there just um you know students of color who are able to get in through regular you know regular channels? It's, it's just it's mm-hmm. something that yeah. I'm kind of you know struggling and also very, uh, that frustrates me. Um, I think it's oftentimes even just in. Not not only in applying to undergrad, but you see just the statistics in applying to the um, graduate school or professional mm-hmm. school, and
3: just yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think it even goes back to high school. There's There was a fight. There was an organization here called Community Coalition um, some years ago. They were fighting just for the school district. Like, hello, can you offer? Um, there's a certain set of, of classes. I forgot what the requirement is. But in high school, that kind of gives you or preps you for um, our state university system. And there, I guess in mm-hmm. South L.A., some of the schools didn't even have that. So it's like, yeah, how can they even get to apply or, or figure out how to get in? if they can't even get their, their correct high school classes. Um, and so it is like not we can't even get to or even start to talk about the college acceptance part when we aren't even setting them up in the right in, in the first place to even be able to meet the qualifications or the minimum requirements to even apply. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it really is. I think there needs to be more conversation um, between some of the you know, our school districts, um, especially in these high schools um, and these universities and colleges. And I, I think that would be really helpful um, so that these students don't end up. Um, being excited about potentially going to school and trying to apply and ultimately being let down um, and, and not being able to kind of make it through. So, I, you know, I don't know what the answer is. I just know for even for me, by the time I got to USC, I applied uh, to USC as a biomedical engineer. And to this day, I can't even tell you what a biomedical <laughs> medical engineer is. Good, I checked the box. I don't know. Right. Um, changed my major tr- five trillion times. My parents didn't know what to tell me. They were just glad I got in. And I'm like, but I don't understand. Mm. Um, so it's even it's trying to get in. Once you get in, how do we make sure that they feel um are, are sort of have this safety net under them, you know, to make sure that they finish. It's a lot. It's a lot to think about, right. and a lot to really try to fix um, from both sides. The school districts, undergrad, you know, the not undergrad, the um, secondary, and then the college. It's really, really hard.
2: Yeah, I'm glad that you also mentioned even before higher education is even in question. So in Canada, specifically Ontario, one of the provinces they actually recently, the Ontario government, um, ended the practice of streaming, which basically is kind of what you talked about, where high school students, even from grade nine, they choose whether to go into the academic stream or the applied stream. And based on that decision early on, it really dictates your prospects of maybe going to the university, colleges, Mm -hmm. or in the trades, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it really limits their like we talked about early on, it limits their opportunities and all the knowledge and all the health outcomes that they could be from, from pursuing education in that sense, especially if they're limited by some institutional policies. You know, yeah, what if they change yeah. their
3: mind, you know, or if they decide mm, they don't want to yeah. do trades anymore? Like what? Mm-hmm. Okay, where I am mm-hmm. in Alberta, exactly. we still have
4: streaming. And what makes it even more harmful, although maybe unintentional, who knows, is that, Students who are in ESL or English as a second language, they're encouraged to take the applied stream. Right. And if you look at who's predominantly in ESL programs, it's racialized people, people of color. And Movies. so it just, mm-hmm. yeah, it creates that gap from the beginning. And you're not even aware it's happening. Let's say, you know, you don't have a parent or someone to advocate for you to, you know, tell your right. school advisor, mm-hmm. no, my child is going to take the, the academic stream, regardless if you feel they can't. You know, so right. it's like, how do you win wow. if you don't have someone to advocate?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. By the time yeah. you get to, like applying for university, you realize, oh, you know, I, I all my courses don't apply. Mm-hmm. You no, know, it's I either gotta mm. go back and t- retake the courses, and then you get you get I guess right. lapped. You know, further right. and further. Yeah. And it's yeah.
4: it's just, yeah,
1: and yeah, that might actually have something to do with you know, I, there were some stats about. Um, Black and Latinx students um, being more likely to attend underfunded uh, post-secondary institutions. Yes. And these, um, I, I know it's different in Canada than in the States. Um, you have the, the two-year colleges and the four-year colleges. Yes. And, um, you know, b- Black and brown uh, students overwhelmingly attend these um, two-year colleges, which, which tend to be, receive less state funding and present less opportunities for um, the students that attend them. And then, you know, white people um, disproportionately attend the four-year colleges. And as a result, um, those colleges get more funding and they get better opportunities when they leave school. So Absolutely. that that perpetuates that disparity, One, even when, as we talked about, yes, re- education is great, but then the playing field still isn't level once you get in it and once you get out of
3: right. it. Right. And then even if you bring into play the for-profit schools, which typically have higher tuition rates, you know, they charge mm-hmm. more. Um, And then, you know, there was a big issue some years ago, some of these for-profit schools, they got into a lot of trouble because it's like you're charging a lot of money, but then these degrees Mm -hmm. are not useful. People are not able to get a job um, or the jobs Mm -hmm. that they thought they were going to be able to get. They can't pay the loans back. So now you got all these schools defaulting Mm -hmm. on like these loans were like horrible. The default rate was so bad. Um, that there was a lot of crackdown on how they were um, providing this education. And to be perfectly honest, you know, I, I taught at a for-profit, a couple for for-profit schools, and they do provide an opportunity for students that can't quit to go back to school full time. You know, they have mm-hmm. to work. They have to take classes online because they're still working. They're taking care of their families. So they provide a wonderful resource. Um, but again, you know, hey, when I leave here, if I want to transfer to another school or I want to get a graduate disc- degree, is this degree recognized? Do people, does this thing hold any mm-hmm. value? And, and a lot of people were finding out after the fact, like, I did. nobody cares about this diploma. I can't do anything mm. with it. So, I think that's the other side of, of again, that disproportionate or that di- di- uh, disparity that we see because they, they charge a lot and people were seriously defaulting um, and getting saddled with a lot of debt.
1: Yeah. And I want to actually, we're going to go over to the recommendation side of things uh, within in the article and en- envisioning higher education as anti-racist. And one of the um, I wasn't going to talk about it so soon, but it was, it's been on my mind since you mentioned, um, you know, the transition from high school to higher education. And one of the, th- the recommendations in the article was to eliminate standardized test scores in college admissions. And I would love to hear what you have to say about things like the SAT and stuff like Ooh. that. Cause we, we don't have that system. <laughs> oh, here in see.
3: That's great. I might have to come up there with y'all. <laughs> 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 um, I think it's something worth examining. I don't know if we should mm. el- eliminate it entirely. I'm not, you know, I don't have enough mm. information about that. But what right, I will right, say right. is I do know that there um, are there is some implicit bias, some little, little bit of racial um, issues going on with the SAT. Like, is it unbiased? Mm. I don't think it is. And so... Mm. Um, That may be something worth thinking about, eliminating it entirely and, again, just relying on students' grades, um, their extracurricular activities, their personal statement um, in order to determine if they would be a good fit for a school or not. Um, I think that's something to be said about maybe letting go of that because we know those types of tests, even the, the tests that they take in high school. There's another one, I think right. in California, um, you have to take some, I don't know if they abolished it or not, but there was a test that, that students had to take, um, and pass before they got their diploma. And that, that wasn't the case. You know, when I was in high school, you kind of just make sure you take mm-hmm. your, 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 your classes and get a certain GPA and then that determines whether you graduate, but it was something about this test. So sometimes these tests that we are finding are very, we think they're, you know, unbiased and neutral and they're actually right. not. So, um, if right. eliminating the SAT will, um, you know, make the playing field more level, I'm, I'm for it, but I would definitely need to, you know, kind of understand the concepts and sort of the issue at hand a bit more, uh, but I'm all for making sure folks have um, the same opportunities, um, it, despite sort of where they came from. Because, you know, right, we all right. don't get the same school. I learned that even at USC. I'm thinking I'm, I was number two in my high school class, got to USC and was sitting in them class genuinely confused. Mm. What is? are they talking about? <laughs> and my friend was like, you didn't learn this in high school? No, I did not. Right.
1: Yeah, and that's interesting because I think at the end of the day, what we're looking for with the SATs is that there's no racial or ethnic disparities in terms of the scores, right? Because that tells you that systematically or systemically something is wrong if a certain group of people tend to do better or worse at it. And with the SAT, I believe that the scores that you get determines kind of the quote-unquote quality of school that you're able to attend. Yeah, yeah. And then... And then, if you're, if certain races do better or worse and they go to the quote unquote poorer colleges, that kind of perpetuates everything over again, where, you know, people of color are underrepresented in kind of academia in terms of getting tenureship with um, universities and stuff like that because they didn't go to the same prestigious schools like Harvard Mm -hmm. and, and whatnot. So it's just a whole cycle that, like you said, we. We probably have to re-examine it more holistically.
3: Absolutely. I think we're going to have to reexamine examine college mm. in, just in general. Mm. Think about it. We're in a situation mm. where the college campuses are closed. Well, at least most of them are. I know mm. mine is we will be teaching online um mm-hmm. usc will be online um, i know some other schools are thinking of d- different ways to do classes but a lot of these schools are going online now and so you know students are rightfully saying hey why am i still paying full tuition um, <laughs> and i am not getting full <laughs> yeah. college experience you know we're talking to our teacher mm-hmm. through a computer screen we gotta start really rethinking some things um uh, it's really interesting really interesting time
1: yeah and another another recommendation um we won't go to through all them, but another one that is more on the, I guess, you know, from my opinion, maybe you could say it's more on the superficial side of action, mm-hmm. where funding mandatory anti-racism workshops in universities and colleges. Um, I'm not sure about that specifically um, as a, as a as a solution to kind of address the institutional racism in education, uh, primarily because. We've kind of seen similar things done before mm-hmm. um, with, you know, discrimination, sexism, and I'm not sure if those have had an effect. Um, just simply telling people how to be, um, you know, how to, I don't know if tolerance is a word, because I, I don't want to go back to tolerance. Right. Um, in, in, uh, when I came to Canada um, in 2007, um, the kind of public discourse around, you know race or just people that are different from quote unquote normal people was we have to have an environment to tolerate people wow wow <laughs> and right and it, right it, that's kind of that's how i heard it anyway. <laughs> what, right? I'm not sure if wow. I'm, right and it's just to uh, yeah, be tolerant of others and it's just like tolerant makes it sound like a chore yes <laughs> you know what i mean right. I don't know if it makes it sound like you know they're not that i mean they're different and they're maybe not as good as you but we just have to put up with them right mm. You know, so I just I to me when I when I see something like workshops, it makes me think of think of those things. I don't know what you. Yeah,
3: um, I think workshops are important. You gotta you kind of have to put it out there like, hey, this is what is happening. Um, This is what we will not accept. This is where we need to move forward. So I feel like in some, mm. in some respect, you kind of do have to educate or at least, in, you know, put that effort forward. But I think mm. what uh, ends up happening is, and this is not even just in, in higher uh, education. What I think happens mm. is we stop there. Oh, we did, we did a training and we trained all the faculty and we trained mm. all the students. And yeah, we, yeah, right. we did this thing. We called this expert in and they, they came and did a thing. And, and yeah, and you need something to kind of check off on your annual report thing. But it's right, like right, yeah. now that everybody sort of has this basic level of understanding, based on this training. Right. Now what? What does that? What does that right. mean moving forward? How do we operationalize that? How do we mm-hmm. institutionalize that? That learning? Mm-hmm. How do we make the change? And I think the other part of training that becomes uh, dangerous is for people like me. And actually, when I wrote my book, the main catalyst for writing my book was I was sitting in a training. And they said that the slide came up and it said Blacks fare worse in every single system in society, education, housing, da da, da da I had all these graphs and charts and stuff. Right, I'm right, Black. Right. you talking about me, you talking about my people, <laughs> my neighbors. So what happens sometimes in those trainings, yes, it's wonderful to understand and learn, but what happens to the people that are in that space that are re-traumatized by the oh, information that's being shared? That How are you protecting the faculty and the staff that are, are part of that, that group that we're trying to, you know, well, let's let's all get together and hold hands. Wait, I, no. Yes. <laughs> mm. yes. So mm. I think yes. that's yes. the other part of it too. How do we protect staff that may feel a certain way by what's being shared? Because ultimately, it's right. going to be traumatizing to them to some degree. Right. So right. there's
1: and even students in the yeah classes well. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Because that reminds me of in our MPH program, we had a a course called uh, Indigenous Health. Mm. And we had um, um, three three people that identified as Indigenous in our class. And be, me being a minority myself, whenever we'd have kind of some of those um, tough classes to learn about, you know, colonialism and some of the, you know, the acts of oppression by, you know, the Canadian government. I would always go to them after class and be like, how how do you feel just kind of learning or listening over and over that? Basically, your people are just screwed over. Yeah. Like I've been in those classes as a black person, and it's kind of uncomfortable for me to sit there for you to, you as maybe even as a white educator to tell me how basically historically screwed over my people have been. To hear that over and over without kind of that the, the positives behind right. it about you know success, you know not not necessarily success stories, but maybe stories of resilience and right. um you know making sure that. The, the take-home messages are clear that people, despite all of these historical injustices, um, as a people, they were still able to overcome and be in the position they are now and are still fighting for um, equity in society. So I think that context sometimes gets lost in yes. the way, um, you know, the whole re- re-traumatizing thing, as you said, for the educator and maybe the students who identify with that particular topic.
3: Absolutely. Yeah,
1: Yeah. so we'll, we'll leave it on this note. So, uh, and I guess everyone can p- put their two cents in before we, f- we conclude it. So, given everything we've talked about today, can we ever truly have these institutions of higher education that are completely free from systemic racism? You can go optimistic we'll or see. pessimistic. We'll, we'll.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I am of the belief that our systems, especially in the United States, are built on racism, oppression. Um, we all know Black people built this country, um, literally, like the White wow. House, all yeah. the our structures, right? right? And mm-hmm. if we really want to change the structures and institutions um, so that they are more equitable, um, I'm of the thought that we have to actually in some way tear them down um, mm-hmm. because the foundation is rotten. <laughs> I and, second that nomination. Know, <laughs> you know as well as I do, if a house is on a messed up foundation, we can't paint the walls and put new curtains on it and say, oh, it's fine now. It's not
4: mm-hmm.
3: so um, I don't. And, and please believe me, I do not have an, an answer as to what it looks like to tear down a system.
1: I didn't. Ex- I didn't expect <laughs> you to. That's OK. <laughs> I'm just saying
3: that. I don't know what like.
1: I would I would nominate you for president right now. If, if you have right? those questions.
3: <laughs> I don't know what that looks like, but I feel like it has to all come down. Mm-hmm. It has to. Right. And there are certain people in this right. country that don't want that to happen. will fight it to the mm-hmm. end. To maintain their level of status and power um and so that's where the problem and the struggle is so i think higher inst- education our institutions of higher learning are just as a part of that just like police um law enforcement right. housing all of it so yeah I, mm. somebody fix it <laughs> so,
1: yeah it goes it goes back i think what you're saying and what i've heard kind of the deeper thinkers say too is is the systems are working the way they were originally intended absolutely to work right so it's not a matter of oh wow you notice that you know people of color just seem to not do well in these systems it's like (laughs) yeah that's that's how they were set up to be right so it's not that it was designed to be equitable and we're realizing now that it's not it's just it was never designed to be equitable Perfect. so it goes to that thing that you're saying about we have to dismantle and redesign something completely new to kind of not leave anybody out.
4: Absolutely. I second everything Nicole said. We definitely have to dismantle the way the systems are built right now. But I just want to touch on something we didn't have time to explore. And I think it deserves its own separate discussion. But especially in a Canadian context, if we talk about educational disparities between mm-hmm. Indigenous and non-Indigenous populations, it's such a huge gap. And it's so it's because of the history of how Especially in Canada with residential schools mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm.
3: so I think that deserves right. its own mm-hmm. airtime. But oh yeah, definitely, yeah. I agree. Definitely. I agree. Um, um, that whole population has been just done so terribly wrong from the very beginning, in the, mm-hmm. especially in the United States. You know, hey, we want your right. land. Okay, we're taking it from you. You gotta go, move. Right. What? Right. This is. This mm. is. This was mine. Or even worse, oh, yeah, here's some blankets and they got syphilis and smallpox, you know, whatever, whatever it was that killed a whole bunch of folks. It's like, you know, they got done wrong back then and then they continue to be done poorly, treated poorly today and uh, they're health you have people with the, uh, out, like,
1: sorry oh. to interrupt and you have people with the audacity to yeah. say to some of them go back to your own
3: <laughs> it's <country."> like oh, <laughs>
1: it's already here someone someone didn't learn very well <laughs>
3: right like yeah. what yeah. Uh, it's it's amazing or get mad or they have their casinos because here you know they they are allowed to own casinos and i'm like okay Mm. yeah they should have all the casinos all of them everything right
1: right like what are you talking
3: about so it's 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 really disheartening and you're right Mm. i think that deserves its own episode um or because it's so much so many layers there a lot of what we have in the united Mm -hmm. states today is on the backs of an indigenous people
1: the whole discussion about you know reparations versus reconciliation and that's something and in canada that's the public discourse in terms of um righting the wrongs with indigenous people is is around reconciliation but i know from from me as an outsider looking in on the united states it's about um reparations mm-hmm. and i think i did a lot of research into the differences and it's very it's very interesting kind of the little nuances between the two right and um but yes, I would love to talk to you about that sure. on, uh, about it a little bit more later. Okay. So, um, Nicole Vick, thank you for joining us to discuss this incredibly important topic with education, uh, racism, uh, and you know, in the in the kind of system of social determinants of health. And I want to give you an opportunity to talk about um, your new book.
3: Thank you. So, my book is called "Pushing Through: Finding the Light mm-hmm. in Every Lesson." It is currently available on Amazon in a Kindle version right now. And then the paperback version comes out September 14th. And this book is about my life. And it has all these fabulous public health themes layered all throughout the book. The whole education conversation is there. Walking onto Mm -hmm. a campus feeling like I don't belong here in that struggle. Um, The idea of something you just said about, hey, is this system acting the way it was designed to. And I think I literally mm. wrote exactly what you said. Like, no, this is, this is, it's working the way it's supposed to. Mm. So you, you right, might think right. it's something wrong with the system. No, the system is working well. We have to dismantle right. it. So all of that is in the book. Um, I talk about body positivity, my journey into that. I talk about relationships, the importance of sisterhood, since I'm a woman, sisterhood, people um, lifting you up, Um, in your professional life and in your personal life so there's a lot of information there and I'm sure that anyone in any space in their life would find something um, helpful in my book awesome
1: and I think it kind of goes not to summarize your book because I have not the chance to read it yet I know there's something you've been saying a lot lately about um, correct me if I'm wrong being in a space that wasn't designed for you is am I getting that right and I think every time i see you post those videos i go wow like i i've i've been in those situations where it's just like this wasn't made for me to be here and you kind of get that uncomfortable feeling and feeling excluded and stuff like that so i'm i'm excited to to you know get a copy of your book and kind of learn more about your journey and i'm sure i can probably identify with a few things yeah identify with a few things in there thank you so for those listening um Check out the book. Go get Nicole's yes. book. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight podcast, your go to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.